This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. It's from Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. Let me read it for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, I think the best way to get the sermon started is to talk about Sherlock Holmes. Now, I don't know how many of you are Sherlock Holmes fans, but he is... Perhaps one of the most famous literary characters of all time, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. If you don't know Sherlock Holmes, let me give you a bit of background. He is presented as the world's greatest detective, and he has a sidekick, Dr. Watson. Now, if you read or watch Sherlock Holmes, the purpose of the writing is for you to be Dr. Watson. You're the person to ask Sherlock why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, You get to be the person who doesn't understand, and Sherlock gets to be the guy who does. And there's always the interplay between the two. Now, let me share one story from you from Sherlock Holmes. They, in one story, they're discussing how many steps there are to Baker Street. And Watson goes, I don't have any idea how many steps there are. And Sherlock goes, well, there's 21. How do you not know that? And Watson's like, how, how do you know that there's 21 steps to Baker Street? And Sherlock says, here's the difference, Watson. You see... I see and observe. That's the difference between the two of us. He's like, you see things all the time, Watson. He goes, but me, I'm seeing and observing. Now, in the story at that point in time, Sherlock goes into a long discussion about how we observe and remember things. So bear with me. He said, uh, he says, Watson, here's the deal. All of us, we have a memory, and we have an attic, an A-T-T-I-C. I can't pronounce that word. A-T-T-I-C. You have an attic full of memories. And Sherlock says, I organize all my memories. I've got them in nice, neat places so that when I need to remember something, I know where to go. He says, Watson, you have a lazy lumberjack attic. Your memory is like a lazy lumberjack. You just come in and dump stuff wherever you want it whenever you get home. 
Like you're tired, and you're like, I'm going to put this here, I'm going to put this here. And so, Watson, when you want to remember something, you can't ever find it. You're a lazy lumberjack. <laughs> he said, what you should do is that you should organize things, and you should use a sense other than sight. Most of us remember things by seeing them. That's it. We stop there. But Sherlock says, no, no, no. I remember taste. I remember smells. I remember touches. That way, when I want to go find something, I can go find it. Break away for us for a minute. How many of you ever seen someone, you've met them, they told you their name, and when you see them, you've got no idea what their name is. They told you 60 seconds ago what their name is, you have no idea. Because all you did is you saw them, and that's all you did. But if you want to remember their name, you go, oh, okay, they have a certain smell. When I shook their hand, or they have a certain texture, or when I met them, we were in a certain place. All of a sudden, you start organizing it, then you might remember someone's name. And that's the point Sherlock's making. He's like, for most of us, our memories, we're lazy lumberjacks. We barely remember anything because we don't organize it. We don't associate it with things. Now, I, I listened to this on, on a run this week, and it's, something's tripping me in my brain. I'm like, there's something here for us. There's something for Evident Grace Fellowship, and, and I don't know what it is. And I kept running and running, and I was like, oh, I can tell you what's here for us. And it's not about memory. We all have a lazy lumberjack approach to prayer. Like we approach our prayer life that way. Now, I do not mean to insult any of you prayer warriors out there. Some of you are incredible, but I'm thinking for the most part, we struggle with prayer. It's not organized. It's not really associated with anything other than an immediate need. And so we might say, dear God, please forgive me. I need this. And if that's your prayer life, thank you. I do not mean to diminish the prayer life that just says, please forgive me, I need this. But there's so much more intended for our prayer life. It's intended to be the most intimate time that you can have between you and God personally. It's supposed to be that moment where you pour out what's in your heart and mind, your anxieties, your concerns, your struggles. A confession of prayer is more than just forgive me. It's a, it's a confession of God of how difficult it is to obey, an expression of your desire to obey. Praying for others is expressing a need, but also putting it in the sense of what God might do with it. And we struggle with that because our prayer lives are often unorganized, and all we can remember is that one single thing. And even as your pastor, I can relate to that. There are times where my prayers feel rote, and they feel routine, and they do not feel intimate. That is not the intention that God has for you in your prayer life. God doesn't intend for you to have a rote, routine, lazy lumberjack approach to prayer. Now you might hear that and go, great, I've got another thing to tell God I'm bad at. And yes, we do need to grow in it. But if we can take this passage in, I'm hoping that what your prayer life will turn into is that moment where your anxieties are relieved. That moment where depression is lifted. That moment where you feel like you've actually communicated with God and he's communicated to you. That's what we're going to pray happens in this week's sermon. Here's our big idea. Here it is. Our big idea is help when it's needed most. And I'm going to give you three points and we're only going to get to the first one this week. But here are the three points. Help when needed most is the Holy Spirit prays for you. When we talk about prayer, I want you to know that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing most of the praying. Okay? Secondly, next week we're going to look at all things work for good. It's more than a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. And three, in two weeks we're going to look at nothing is an accident. Nothing is an accident. 
all we're going to get to this week is that the Holy Spirit prays for you. Now, before we get here, let me give you some background. Some of you have not been here in the last couple of weeks. Some of you don't remember last week. And some of you have never been here at all. So let me give you a little bit of context because it's going to help this passage make a lot of sense to us, okay? A couple of weeks ago, I believe it was in verse 16, this passage told us this, that the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to give life to your mortal body. Think about that for a minute. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to give life to your mortal body. Jesus died, dead, heart stopped, no brain activity, dead, and was buried. In every sense that we understand death. And the Spirit rose him back to life. Resurrection. Rose him back to life. They didn't do chest compressions. They didn't shock him. There's none of that stuff. Like the Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit dwells in you. When you have faith in Jesus Christ, you get the Spirit. The Spirit's not less powerful. It's not a junior version of the Holy Spirit. It's not less than. You have the same Spirit and the same power indwelling you that raised Jesus from the dead. That's very important as we go forward. It's very important you remember, especially when we begin thinking about prayer. Okay? Then we saw, a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus, excuse me, that, that the Father adopted you. You were a traitor and enemy of God because of your sin. And just in every sense that we understand adoption, God said, you, I pick you. I'm going to adopt you. And I'm going to make you a son and daughter of God. And you're going to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You're not less than. You don't have a different name. You've got the same name. You are a child of God. You didn't deserve it, but you were desperately in need. And God said, you, I pick you. And then we looked at the tough part. Well, if we are brothers and sisters of Jesus, we're going to suffer like our brother Jesus. Jesus suffered to bring many sons to glory. He suffered so that people might have faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the purposes of your suffering is for God to be glorified in it and for you to have a hope that transcends what the world understands as hope. When we hear that, that's immediately when we go, that's where I want to get off the boat because I don't think I can do that. So remember, these three things as we go forward, okay? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead indwells in you. You're adopted, but we're going to suffer, okay? All of that is why this first verse says, likewise. Let's look at verse 26. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27 again, okay? The Holy Spirit prays for you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the first half of the sermon is going to be preaching from these verses. The second half of the sermon is going to be teaching on prayer. Okay? So we're going to understand the basis of this. I'm going to preach it like a sermon. And then in the end, we're going to have like a little teaching time about prayer because it's necessary. Now, let me tell you the big reveal. Our Christmas series is the prayers of Christmas. And we're going to focus on prayer throughout Christmas. I'm going to send out a 31-day prayer guide like we did this summer so we can all be praying the same things together. Because in 2020, we've got to be a better church of prayer. It has to be more of our discipline. It has to be more of our spontaneity. 
and it has to be more of our growth in Jesus Christ. So it's not going to stop here. We're going to do the prayers of Christmas. I'm going to give you a study guide. I'm excuse me, a, a prayer guide for every day of December. And then we're going to pray that God does something with it, okay? Let's look at these verses, okay? Look at verse 26. Likewise, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Your weakness can also be translated infirmities. You might see that in some of your translations. But here's the thing. When you are weak, the Spirit helps you. This is one of those, that word for weakness, infirmity is so great. It's one of those times where you say, I can't do this. I've got nothing. I cannot do what you're asking me to do. I'm weak, and I'm helpless, and I'm sick. There's no way. When the verse prior to this says you're going to suffer like Jesus, very few of us go, I got this. It's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger predator kind of, like, it's not one of those, like, action movie moments, like, yeah, I'm going to run into it. It's not that. Like, most of us can't do that. The Spirit is going to help you in your weakness. I recall times in my life when I was so weak and weeping so heavily, I couldn't speak, much less be strong in my weakness. And most of us can relate to that. There's some of us that have a social anxiety that's so great, the idea of speaking to another person is too great, much less even understanding how to speak to God. And I want you to know in this verse, that the promise here is that the Spirit is going to help you. For we don't even know what to pray for. There's times where we have no idea what to pray for. Parents, we tell our kids, you need to pray. I want you to pray. But we ourselves struggle what to pray for. But this is a deep, deep need. This is like, I've got, I'm hurting so bad I'm scared so much. My fear is so great. I don't even know what to do here. I mean, I have zero before God. It is the utter state of helplessness. We don't know, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, as we should be praying. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Okay, let's talk about interceding. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about groanings too deep for words, okay? Let's make sure we understand what intercedes means. So all my kids out here, all my students, all my, my kids, you may not know what intercede, intercede means or the word intercession. So let me explain it to you, okay? You guys see the speaker over here? You see that one right there? All my kids? And you see this other speaker over here? You see these two speakers? They're, con- they're disconnected. They're not near each other. But they're cords that come out of that speaker and they're cords that come out of this speaker and they go into this little monitor right here, right? And all of a sudden they're connected. And so they're connected by those cords and this little machine right here makes sure that you hear everything. That's what intercession is like. And so here, that's you over here and that's the Holy Spirit over here. And you need to get to God and it's going to take everything to God so that God knows what you need. Does that make sense? There's got to be a go-between. And the Spirit is the go-between between you and God. Okay? So when you don't know what to pray for, you're so upset, you're so upset that you don't know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for you on your behalf. Like when you're sad and you're crying and you're worried and you're nervous and you're anxious, the Spirit looks into your heart finds out what you need, 
and prays for you. Now, how does he do it? He intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Did you know that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak English? The Holy Spirit doesn't speak Spanish. Now, of course, he knows Spanish and English, but English wasn't around when the Bible was written, much less when the Old Testament was written. Languages are human creations as a gift from God, right? So I can't wait to get to heaven and figure out what they're speaking. My professor in college and seminary said it has to be Greek. When uh, he once asked me, uh, how are you with your Greek? And he said, I'm very poor at it. And he goes, well, how are you going to speak in heaven then? I was, he was convinced that we all speak in Greek. We don't know. But in words too deep, groanings too deep for words, that's the language of the Holy Spirit to the Father. And we just don't understand it. But here's the thing. Not only when we struggle and we can't pray and we can't articulate our words, we don't even know what to say, the Spirit's going to go into your heart Figure out what you need to say to God and take it to God in the language between the Father and the Spirit. Think about for a moment how comforting that is. You don't even know what to pray for. But the Spirit is praying for you. Look at verse 27. And he, this he here is God the Father. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. God knows what the Spirit is saying on your behalf. He knows. There's not a communication breakdown at all. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's God's will to know what's going on in your life. It's God's will to know your deepest hurt. So let me tell you this right here, friends. Okay, listen to me. This is important. Your deepest pain is your greatest opportunity for intimacy with God. Your deepest pain is your greatest opportunity for intimacy with God. Because in that pain, you understand Jesus better, and the Holy Spirit searches your heart to take that promise to God. So let me put this in a way that maybe we can really understand it, okay? Let's do a who, what, where, when, how, and why, okay? Let's do that. So here it is for you guys, and, and I'll send this out tomorrow morning. So who's the who here? Who's the who? We got... There we go. Who? There we go. Who? The Holy Spirit. He's the subject of this whole entire little paragraph here. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God, Father, and Holy Spirit, they're all one. There's no difference. One is not more powerful than the other. They're one, equal in substance and glory. That's who they are. And so the Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart is going to do what? He's going to help you. When we think about God, we often think, okay, what God really does is he makes me feel bad, he's angry at me, he's disappointed at me. That's what we often think when we think about God. But when you think about the Holy Spirit, I want you to think of this. He does lots of things. But in this passage, he's letting you know that the Holy Spirit helps you. Where? Where does all this happen? In your heart. I don't know your heart. I've got a sense of your heart. I see what you do, and I know what you say. And the Bible says that we can learn things by what people do and they say. But I don't know your heart. For many of you, you've been very kind. I've been honored to hear some of your deep deep hurts. And I, like, have shared some with you. But the Spirit 
knows your deep and deepest hurts. He knows the secret of your heart that you have not shared. He knows the pain that only you have walked through. And he knows the depth. Like, we don't even understand how badly we're hurt, but the Spirit does. And he goes into the deepest core of you. The deepest pain that you do not know how to articulate to another person or to God. And that's where he goes to find your deepest need. When does he do that? It's the best time. When does he do it? When you're the weakest. When you're weak and you don't know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit comes to you when you're helpless in your needs. When you're most weak. Like, God, I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know what to do here. That's when the Holy Spirit goes into the deepest part of your heart. He finds that hurt. And he goes, I'm going to help you in your most intimate, most vulnerable moment. Some of us have shared intimacy and vulnerability with others. And we've been hurt. Or we've been turned away. Or we've been judged. That's not what the Holy Spirit's doing. He goes to that deepest hurt and says, I love this person. The Spirit says, I love you. Because I love you so much, I'm going to take that hurt that you don't know what to do with, and I'm taking it to God who's going to heal it. Why does this happen? Because it's God's will when you don't know what to pray for. It's God's will. God wants this for you. He's like, I want to know their hurts, but they're so hurting they can't even communicate it. He wants to do it. It's God's will. So when we think about God's will, we often think about, God, what do you want me to do next week? I've got a decision to make. Do I want to switch jobs? What decision? We, those are the things we wrestle with typically with God's will. I want you to know, and those things are all true, but what I want you to know that it's God's will to find your deepest hurt and to begin healing it. It's God's will to find your deepest hurt and to speak to God on your behalf. And how does he do it? He does it by interceding for you with groanings too deep for words. Whatever that communication is between the Spirit and the Father, he does it. It's not words that we would understand. Okay, at this point in time, I need to shift to a little bit of a teaching time. Because this passage raises a lot of questions. This passage divides denominations. This passage makes us go, what is actually going on here? So what I want to do is I don't want to brush away the beautiful intimacy of this passage. We're going to come back to it at the end. But I want to take a few moments to teach you about prayer. And so the first thing I've got to do is I've got to talk about the Greek language. I will do my best not to bore you. Even though I had to take Greek and Hebrew, I did not love Greek and Hebrew by any stretch of the imagination. I don't have all this memorized anymore. I had to go look it up because I know it's important. I want us to talk about what is the language of prayer for you and God. Okay? Now, in Greek, there are three tenses. Okay? There's the active, passive, and middle. Let me talk about each one of them, okay? So, there are tenses in Greek. And and I'll give you an example for each one so maybe it'll make sense. Let's look at the active real quick. An active voice here initiates an action. So, let's say I'll do it from my perspective as a pastor. I'm counseling my friend. That's an active voice. It's an active tense, right? Like, I'm doing something specific. I'm going to do this. I am counseling my friend, okay? Now, in the passive voice, you receive an action that someone else initiates, right? I am counseled by my friend. We got the coffee, and one of you guys are giving me good advice, right? 
does make a little bit sense, right? The active and passive. I'm doing something or someone's doing something for me. But in Greek, there's a middle voice. So when you actively participate in an action that someone else initiates, I take counsel. It's a cooperating voice, and that's the language of prayer. Let me explain that. Because I can do something, and you can do something, but I can participate in something that you've started. You see the difference between the three? So it's active, passive, and middle. So either I'm doing it, you're doing it, or I'm participating in something that you've started. That third one, that middle voice, that's prayer. That's prayer. That's the language intended for our prayer lives. And I want this to inform you when you pray. Because it's tempting in in our prayer life to go, dear God, thank you, I love you, please forgive me, and I need help on this test. Those are all valid prayers. I will never, ever mock or diminish the prayer life. But prayer life's intended to be deeper than that. A cooperating prayer is, God, I know that you love me. And I know that you want me to obey. Would the Holy Spirit enable me to obey? God, I know that you love me and you love my non-Christian friend. Would you save them and enable me to share the gospel with them? Father, I'm scared right now. I'm scared. But you've given the Holy Spirit to comfort me. Would you comfort me? Would you send the Holy Spirit to comfort me? Do you see the difference? When we talk about what God has done, who he is, and what he's promised, and then we pray that into our prayers, that's the cooperating voice of prayer. It's something that the Spirit has doing and I'm taking part in it. So when we hear this verse here, that when we can't even articulate our prayers, we're, we're too sad, too anxious, too worried, that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, figures out what you need, and take it, that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is cooperating in your worry, anxious, anxiousness, and fear. And he's praying for you. He's praying for you. Friends, it takes faith to prayer, to pray, excuse me. And it takes faith to trust that prayer. But that middle voice, that cooperating voice, is what God is doing in your prayer life. Let me explain one other thing about this. I want to do the, uh, the middle and the active and passive. I want to explain what it is and what it isn't, okay? And hopefully, I'm, I'm not wearing you out with too much teaching time here. In the middle voice, I don't, con- there's a couple ways people see it, okay? In the middle voice, People think, I don't control the actions. But that's really a pagan concept, okay? When you're praying, it's not that you don't control anything. If I just said, God, do this, I don't have any control over God. You understand? I don't, God doesn't do what I ask him to do just because I said it. He's not, he's not my slave. He's not my whipping boy. It's not the way it works. In the middle of voice, I'm not controlled by my, those actions. That's a Hindu concept of prayer where we slump to the will of God. In the middle voice, I enter into actions begun by another. I find myself participating in the results of the actions. I neither do it nor have done it to me. I participate in what is willed. So you understand what we're saying? When we pray, we're not like, hey, God, do this, and God has to march to my orders. It doesn't work that way. 
And when I pray, it's not that God's controlling you like a robot. When you pray, you're participating in what God has done. This is going to make a lot of impact when we study predestination in a minute. Two days, two weeks. But what I want you to know for your prayer life, it's not trying to get God to do what you want him to do. It's not you being controlled. You're participating in what God has willed. So when you are struggling and when you're fearful and you're sad and you can't articulate, you're participating with God even in that struggle to speak. But the Spirit is seeking your heart out and taking those words to God. I know that that's a big Greek lesson in about eight minutes, so hang in there, and I will be glad to meet with any of you to talk about it. Now we need to talk about the controversial topic. Is this speaking in tongues? So I I debated whether to bring this up here or not, but someone's going to bring it up afterwards. So let's talk about that, okay? Does everyone know what I'm talking about when I talk about speaking in tongues? Maybe not. Has I've, I worshiped at a, a charismatic church for a couple of summers. It was good for me. There were some of my family have been in that, in that denomination or that, that, that stripe of Christianity. I want to talk about that, and we need to answer the question, is that what this is talking about? Okay. So if you don't know what speaking in tongues is, and I want to speak respectfully, though there might be disagreements in the church, I don't want to be disparaging to other believers. By definition, this is what speaking in tongues is to many Christians. It's, a, it's an ecstatic utterance that communicates messages from God to individuals and congregations, okay? Ecstatic means that it's, it's kind of like the spontaneous moment with a, a language from God uh, to me, to the congregation. It, it's it, it's a, a, an undiscernible language that happens in a lot of church services, and people feel like God is speaking directly to others. It happens in a lot of churches. Some of you may have grown up in that. Some of you may have experienced it at some point in time, okay? I have... I'm not there. I'm here. Okay? Now, here's how we understand whether that is this. You tracking with me? We ask a couple of questions. Here's the first question. Is there a biblical precedent? When people are in a church service and there's an indiscernible language that's happening from someone to communicate a special message from God, do we see an example of that in Scripture? And the answer is no. There's four examples of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. And in every case, it was someone having the spontaneous gift to speak a known language, and people got saved. So there's only four examples in the book of Acts. We'll talk about Corinthians in a minute. What that meant when the book of Acts was that all of a sudden, I was gifted with the ability to speak German. I don't speak German. But in Acts... The apostles all of a sudden could speak a different language and people heard the gospel in their language. That's what happened in the book of Acts. The word there for tongues is a known language and and we see it. People got saved and they said, why do we hear the gospel in our own language? That's what's happening in Acts. So when people have these experiences in worship services, that's not what we're studying here in in, in the book of Romans, okay? And that's not what we see in the book of Acts. So we have to ask a second question. Well, is what we see consistent with that precedent? It doesn't appear to be consistent. There is an example, and it doesn't seem to be consistent with the book of Acts. Is it consistent with the commands around that precedent? Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of commands about speaking in tongues. 
in their commands about how it should happen. Like there should always be two people to interpret. There's a big list. There's a big list. And so if tongues were to happen, they would have to follow that list. Okay? So I'm just giving you this example. That list is not this. Okay? That list in 1 Corinthians is talking about public worship services. And what's happening in Romans is not that. So right now it would appear that what's happening in Romans is not what many think is a public speaking in tongues. Now just going forward, if you try to ever figure things out in the Bible, I've got two more questions for you. If there isn't a precedent, is it consistent with Scripture? Sometimes things happen that don't happen in Scripture. Like you just don't have an example of everything. And you just got to go, was that consistent with what the Bible says? And the final question is, how do we view that precedent in light of Jesus Christ? Because I might offer a goat sacrifice one day, and I go, well, it's in the Bible. And I'm doing the way they told me to do. And you got to go, whoa, Gordon, that's not... Now that Jesus has come, we're not offering goat sacrifices anymore. So it's, you've always got to ask, it, there might be an example, you know, but I'm not bringing donkeys in here to give you guys prophecy, right? So there's things that happen in the Bible that we're not supposed to be doing in worship services, okay? That's a cursory look at speaking in tongues. What I'm offering to you, though, is what happens in worship services is not what's happening in Romans. Now, some might say, well, Romans is a private prayer language. And I would say, yes, it's between God and the Holy Spirit. Those two are having a conversation. I'm not participating in it. The Spirit and the Father are having a conversation. I'm not. My role is to sit for the Holy Spirit to plumb the depths of my heart. So forgive me, we will talk more about tongues later. I'll be glad to meet with any of you to answer any questions as I've wrestled some of those things myself. Having said that, let's jump back to the passage. What I want for you is to walk away here with a comfort that in your deepest need, your deepest anxiety, your deepest depression, your deepest worry, and your deepest hurt, the Spirit, by the will of God, wants to take all that need, worry, and anxiety to the Father to comfort you, to transform you, and to heal you. You might say, Gordon, how do I, do I, does this happen? Do I ever know it happens? And I might say, I'm not quite sure, but I'll offer this to you. We've got to go back to the Isaiah 30 passage from our time of repentance. We must grow in being comfortable in silence and rest before God. In your hurt, in your need, in your anxiety, We've got to grow in saying, Father, I don't even know what to pray for. Spirit, will you pray for me? And grow comfortable being silent and still before God. Guys, I get how hard it is. If I sit still without noise or some sensory going on, I go to sleep. I go to sleep in the pickup line to pick my kids up from school. I can be there. If I'm there 10 minutes, I have to set an alarm to wake myself up or people are honking for me to move on up because I miss it. It's hard for me to sit still without doing something. But in silence and rest, we find God. And we've got to grow in being silent and restful. Now, here's the good thing. All this passage is about our inability. The Spirit's going to do it for you one way or the other. Because he loves you. He's going to take your needs before God. But you yourself might experience more rest, 
more strength and more comfort if we can learn to be silent before God in our needs. And remember the middle voice, the cooperating voice. When we pray, Father, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know. But you've promised that you would send the Holy Spirit to take the needs of my heart to you. That's the cooperating voice of prayer. Let me offer you three things. I don't have a a, a, a truth application and action on this one, uh, but I do have three things I want you to take away, okay? Just three quick takeaways before we bring our service to a close. One, I want you to write it down in terms of personal. I want you to write down, the Spirit helps me when I'm weak. The Spirit helps me. I can tell you, the Spirit helps you when you are weak. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, he's actively and purposely always helping you. Two, he takes your needs to God. You can write down, the Spirit takes my needs to God. Constantly, always, consistently. Better than any friend. And third, it's God the Father's will to help you. Writing down, it is God's will to help me. Practicing those truths will transform you. They will give you hope. They will ease your anxiousness. They will move you towards healing in your place of hurt. And forgive me, friends. Some places in Scripture require a little bit of this. Where we've got to ask our questions, is this, is that, is this not this? The takeaway are those three things. The Holy Spirit helps you, will help you. It's God's will to help you. Even when you don't know what to do, the Spirit is constantly searching your heart, constantly finding that thing that you need to express to God. He's expressing it, and God's will is to help you. Why? Because he's adopted you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you so that you would be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the suffering that Jesus walked through, we so desperately need to know this comfort. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, would you take these truths and seal them to our heart? Would you give us hope that our hurts can be healed? Would you give us hope that our anxiousness would diminish? Would you give us hope that you're constantly interacting with us? Thank you that it is your will to care for us. And I pray that we would grow in prayer. Would we be a people of prayer these next few months and moving into next year? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.